Welcome back to our segment after the show. This is a, uh, a segment of the program I've often enjoyed as it's a, a time to sort of really roll up our sleeves and really take on some very complicated uh, cases that you may have. And indeed, we have many, many that have been coming in. Uh, Paul, this is a, a, an excellent question that's come in. We didn't touch on this during the program today. This is coming from Ray Lacey. And I'll just uh, try and uh, maybe paraphrase it a little bit. Um, an individual who has presented uh, with symptoms of depression uh, was given an antidepressant in the absence of a mood stabilizer. And uh, subsequent to being exposed to an antidepressant, uh, began to experience manic features, manic features along with psychotic features, which were specifically hallucinations. So this was a, uh, an affective presentation with psychotic features uh, as well, was given a diagnosis of schizophrenia based on this presentation. At what point, uh, Raymond Lacey is asking, at what point might the schizophrenia diagnosis be appropriate or perhaps a schizoaffective disorder the more appropriate diagnosis? Um, I'm really glad um, this question was asked or this case was, was raised because we didn't touch at all on right. the other half of the differential. Talked a lot about distinguishing um, bipolar disorder from depression on the mood end of things, but um, compared, but when patients present with psychosis, there's another differential. So psychotic symptoms we know are nonspecific. In fact, there is no um, pathognomonic uh, psychotic symptom for schizophrenia classic paper by Pope and Lipinski, uh, published now over 30 years ago, was one of the most widely cited papers in psychiatry for 20 years, was the first to sort of debunk that there was specific uh, schizophrenic symptoms. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it probably is important to err on the side of diagnosing a psychotic mood disorder, cross-sectionally at least, compared with schizophrenia, since the prognosis is so much different. Right. Um, from a treatment standpoint, so mania is often accompanied by psychosis. About a third of patients with uh, manic presentations are floridly psychotic. About another third have at least thought disorder. So it's practically part and parcel of the, of the manic syndrome. But then we get into longitudinal uh, aspects mm -hmm. of the illness, getting back to the whole bipolarity right. index. You know, let's, right. let's look at the course of illness beyond cross-section. Um, I think there's evidence that... Um, Schizoaffective bipolar type compared with schizoaffective disorder depressive type uh, is much more cl is much closer to bipolar disorder itself, phenomenologically, probably genetically, and probably is a either sev more severe form of bipolar disorder or a slightly different uh, genetic form of bipolar disorder, right. which in turn right. links to the severity issue. Um, and again, I think that the issues are primarily that for somebody with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type, where by definition their psychosis would endure beyond the duration of their manic symptoms for some substantial period of time, the key thing there is treat with a mood stabilizing mm -hmm. drug and an antipsychotic drug, or with some evidence that some of the atypicals are in fact mood stabilizing, right. perhaps pick those over right. other drugs that don't have the mood stabilizing uh, benefits pro proven yet. Right. One of the, the issues around this whole uh, schizophrenia bipolar dichotomy that I think is being, if you will, um, uh, questioned is some of the genetic work that you made reference to. In fact, when we look at genetic susceptibility factors for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, they actually seem to overlap quite considerably. Uh, during the show, we, we talked about issues of inflammation, and we're learning that some of the genetic susceptibility 
uh, factors for schizophrenia and bipolar shared in common are genes that are coding for proteins that participate in areas of uh, neurotrophism, uh, synaptogenesis, glial development, but also issues of inflammation, which is very interesting. This may be a, a point of commonality across both conditions. Assuming the patient had bipolar disorder, someone who is, has had a, a mania, a psychotic mania, mobilized by an antidepressant, assuming the diagnosis is bipolar disorder, notwithstanding some of the um, do's and don'ts about diagnosing bipolar in that case, um, well, how would you treat this person? Would you treat them with uh, mood stabilizing medications? Would you treat them as they have uh, you know, with antidepressant medications? What's your approach in general? I think assuming this person was in the hospital, or even assuming they weren't, I would probably treat them with an atypical antipsychotic drug, uh, since it sounds like the psychotic symptoms were pretty pronounced. Um, I would personally, uh, I, I like to use combination therapy for a lot of people from the start, uh, based on some evidence from research studies, and certainly my experience for what that's worth that combination therapy often gets people better more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it does pose the dilemma, though, that once someone has recovered, uh, whether you should continue both drugs, for example, right. in combination therapy, and, or maybe taper and, and discontinue one. I think that's a case-by-case Right. Issue. Now, I'll just flag the, the off-label use of some of these uh, medications. We're having this case-based discussion here now, and uh, we discussed during the program what's indicated from the FDA, but often we're using medications off-label, and this was one example. Um, we have a question here that is uh, coming from uh, Anna Smalai, and what she's asking is, I feel that most of the patients who are diagnosed to have adult ADHD, in fact, have bipolar disorder and some of them begin to abuse stimulants. What is your opinion on this issue? Um, well, I'd love to know yours, yours too, Roger. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's, again, similar to the issue of ADHD in, in adolescence, that there is the problem of diagnostic nonspecificity for ADHD symptoms. It, you know, those symptoms in, in aggregate um, fit a lot of different conditions. Secondly, there probably is a co-occurrence of both syndromes in some people. And then thirdly, there's probably a misdiagnosis issue in some people. Um, so that I tend, and again, this is my approach, doesn't mean it's the right approach, but I tend to, uh, one, try to distinguish those mm -hmm. two things. Mm -hmm. um, I found that a lot of people, especially in the 90s, said that they had ADHD because it seemed to have been a more socially acceptable diagnosis for a period of time. It, at least in the U.S. Um, so they would come in saying they had ADHD. Further history often found that they didn't have ADHD or right. they had, if they did, they had bipolar disorder. So I, I tend to treat the bipolar illness first if they tr truly have comorbid uh, ADHD. And then, depending on what's left over, if you will, yeah. um, add in treatments for ADHD. Sage advice. One of the observations I've had in the clinic is, yes, this presentation of ADHD features in, in our adult patients. Uh, we mentioned the MINI earlier. The MINI is also capable of diagnosing ADHD in our adult outpatients or inpatients. So certainly that's another plug for using that type of structured interview. My count tells me as of last week there are four studies in the literature that have looked at ADHD in the adult bipolar population. And indeed, there is a higher rate uh, in our bipolar population. And the, the pertinacity of this is really uh, 
what the implications of ADHD are in a bipolar patient. What we see is a, a greater severity of illness. We see more uh, antisocial personality behaviors in these types of patients, often more anxiety conditions as a comorbidity, and perhaps as no surprise, substance right. use disorders as well. So there are implications for the burden of illness for the bipolar patient for us to be thinking about uh, ADHD. But I like your point. Let's get the bipolar treated first. Uh, in some ways, is arbitrary than ADHD, but later. We have a question from Dr. Leslie Lunt. I'm glad Leslie could join us uh, for today's program. Uh, she's asking about uh, the newer medications, such as acenapine and ilopiridone. Uh, these are two atypical antipsychotics. Acenapine has recently been approved for bipolar mania and for schizophrenia. Ilopiridone recently approved for schizophrenia. And the question is around where do they fit in in terms of bipolar disorder? Maybe I'll take the, the question on acenapine. Um, it does have a, a first-line uh, indication now for treating bipolar mania and mixed states. Uh, we don't have data regarding acenapine and bipolar depression or in maintenance. Those are studies that are underway. To my knowledge, there are no studies with either peridone available uh, in bipolar disorder. I don't know, Paul, if you know of any. I don't know of any. Here's another question that has uh, been put forth. I think this is really um, a very helpful one. We, we talked about uh, guidelines. This is from Judy Splitgerber. She's asking about diagnostic guidelines for pediatric or juvenile bipolar disorder. Um, I think we're, uh, we're a little bit handicapped by neither of us being child psychiatrists. Right, right. Um, so I, I have to give that caveat, at least regarding my opinion. I know that, um, that there, are, there were published guidelines about two or three years ago, uh, I think in the Orange Journal, but I may be mistaken yes. about that. Um, now, the problem with guideline publication is as soon as they're published, especially given how rapid uh, the advances are in, in this field, uh, they're often outdated. Um, so I, I can't speak to how uh, current those guidelines are. And as you said during the, the formal program, um, there are a lot of new trials, including yeah. some brand new research. Yeah. Um, so I think that's got to get uh, incorporated into any guideline that was published recently. Right. Here's a question from Willard Fernald, and the question is uh, 25, this is a very real-world situation. 25-year-old woman who had a manic episode while in college has been stable, presumably been stable on medication, and now is wanting to maybe live life without medication. What are the dangers? That's a tough call. Yeah. Um, to the, to the extent that there were uh, longitudinal studies of sufficient duration, um, in, and even in the pre-pharmacologic era, let alone post-lithium, um, not everybody who has an initial manic episode has another one, but, but most people do, right, um, right. At, at least um, 19 out of 20, uh, if not more. I think, you know, it's a free country. People have the right to adhere to treatment or not. Um, I think the... the honest thing is to go over the potential risks and benefits, try to understand why. I mean, I, I understand I wouldn't want to take a medicine if I, if I don't have to, but if, is there another reason? Is it having to do with wanting to have children, for right, example? Right, um, right. Try to explore what the reasons are, and then if, if you can't uh, dissuade that person, I, th I think just uh, the usual informed consent to sit discussion. Here's the right. benefits of, of treatment or in the risks of no treatment. Uh, Paul, here's a question from Pamela Chandler. Again, we're, we are a bit handicapped on this one. It's a pediatric question again. At what age, or what is the youngest age, can bipolar disorder be diagnosed? Uh, maybe I'll take a first stab at that. If you know, I think this is a, it, it sort of remains a somewhat controversial issue. I think that 
adolescent bipolar disorder, probably less controversial than prepubital bipolar disorder. Prepubital bipolar disorder has been looked at by a couple of groups here in the United States and also in Europe. And um, these are individuals who have tremendous expertise uh, in bipolar disorder, particularly pediatric prepubital pre pre bipolar disorder, and have been able to characterize a pediatric phenotype of bipolar disorder and have tracked these individuals out three years, five years, and longer, showing stability of that phenotype and have been able to show some of the features we talked about with the bipolar index, this is the family history, some of the course of illness features. And, um, and I think that there's really a couple of points. The first is, is that the diagnosis can be made. But I think that there needs to be a, a lot of caution. The people who are making this diagnosis and are characterizing this and really refining this sort of composite of bipolar disorder in young, young children are people very expert in, in this area. And I think that if there's a, an individual who's presenting with chaotic behaviors, unstable moods, disorganized uh, uh, you know, cognitive activities, clearly one needs to think about a mood disorder. There are other diagnoses that are just uh, probabilistically more common in that patient population. And, and the obvious one that comes to mind is, is ADHD. And uh, I've often been asked about uh, ADHD and, you know, a child may present with ADHD and has psychotic features. Well, that child doesn't have ADHD, right? right? Or has ADHD and is sexually preoccupied. That's not part of ADHD. Or ADHD and is grandiose. That, grandiose is not part of ADHD. So I think we need to never forget some of the phenomenology. Um, I think that the diagnosis of uh, in, in pediatric body, young children pre-puberty needs to be done very, very carefully. And again, I would be um, thinking about uh, asking for a consultation with colleagues around that diagnosis. I don't know if you have any other thoughts around that, Paul, that are different. Um, I, I don't think much more enlightening, except, uh, again, anecdotally, um, and actually some from some of the research studies that we've done um, over time with, with people with bipolar disorder, if you, if you ask somebody with bipolar disorder when the illness started, looking back on their lives, I'm talking about an adult now, right? Um, up to about a third will say, as long as I can remember, right? which right. is usually age right. four or five. Right. And it's not so much that they had classic manic episodes or even syndromal depressive episodes, but they knew back then, especially looking back now, that there were certain behaviors that sure. they had that they just weren't part of the, right. the normal bell-shaped distribution. Um, I think the other problem with this area is, is just, as you said, that uh, the, br the brain is, is it, it continues to grow even into adulthood and change in adulthood, but is very plastic, it, it, it is and certainly more so at, at certain parts of develop that, de development than others. Environmental things, trauma, abuse, those things can cause some of the behaviors that could be mistaken for symptoms of bipolar disorder. So I think... Just as I said, you've got to be humble about diagnosis in adults. I think you've got to be real humble about it with absolutely. kids. Absolutely. But not, but not dismiss the possibility. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, I liked your point earlier about, yeah, we screen for bipolar and someone who presents with depression, but as we see this patient longitudinally, keep thinking about bipolar. This would only be, uh, this would apply to adults, but also to the pediatric population, even more so given the fact that we've learned that in a depressive presentation in a young child or in a young adolescent, the probability that person is bipolar is even higher than a depression presenting in a 25 or 30 year old. Right. So I think we need to be always be thinking about these more covert presentations of bipolar. We have a question from one of our callers. Uh, we'll take that question now. Hi, this is Dr. Jennifer Nadish. I'm 
a clinical psychologist in New York City who works with many bipolar patients. And I've heard reports of patients on atypical antipsychotics, for example, Abilify, developing both extrapyramidal syndrome and tardive dyskinesia. Could you please apprise me of any new developments in the management and outlook for this serious condition? And again, Abilify is aripiprazole. Um, in clinical trials in adults, um, there was a very low rate, but, but a rate that was not nil, of uh, in extrapyramidal symptoms I consider non-achathesia symptoms, so Parkinsonian side effects, dystonias. Um, so, so we know that from adult studies it does happen, but not commonly. Um, tardive dyskinesia also was reported. Now, the, and, I, and I'm not, this is not um, to dispute that tardive dyskinesia could be occurring, especially if it's the first, if, if aripiprazole is the first drug used in an adolescent, for example. One problem in the adult studies is that a lot of people who um, entered those trials had not first episode illness. And right. so they had had prior exposure right. to antipsychotic drugs, including first generation drugs. So it was hard to, to parse out was this new onset tardive dyskinesia from aripiprazole, the prior treatment, or some combination thereof. Um, I think the, the safest approach is probably to assume that aripiprazole, like any antipsychotic drug, including any second generation drug, can cause extrapyramidal side effects can cause tardive dyskinesia, albeit at low rates, but right. it's still a risk. Yeah, and I'll add to that by saying that I think we should also take, uh, you know, should assume that although these atypical, some of them are uh, less likely to cause weight gain, they can still cause weight gain. And this week in JAM, I made reference to this. This is covered in the New York Times today. Atypicals, including aripiprazole, can cause significant weight gain in children. Again, less so than some others, but I think we cannot forget that there is that risk. And children may be at higher risk of developing weight gain with some of these medications. I think it's still an academic question whether that's a developmental sensitivity or is that because they haven't been exposed to antipsychotics before. It's more of a treatment naive issue rather than an age issue. But notwithstanding, uh, we do see weight gain in young children. And this, I think, is something we cannot forget, even for agents that have less propensity. This is an excellent question, and I think it, 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 it's um, certainly is a, the future of psychiatry, at least in psychopharmacology, the issue of pharmacogenetic testing. Mm. And uh, this is a question from Dr. Sri Mogeno, who's asking, pharmacogenetic testing, should we be using it? What's its role in selecting agents for bipolar patients? Yeah, I, I think it's pharmacogenetic testing, uh, which is right now primarily testing for um, polymorphisms or genetic variants in the cytochrome P450 system that can um, contribute to an individual either uh, metabolizing drugs too quickly so that uh, plasma concentrations or brain concentrations become subtherapeutic or so slowly that um, plasma concentrations, brain concentrations build and side effects become prominent even at in theory, uh, theoretic doses. Um, I, one problem right now, in t to my knowledge, is that the pharmacogenetic testing assays um, are not um, covered by most insurance companies. Now, that hopefully will change sooner than later. Um, so it's an out-of-pocket expense for a lot of people, and the cost of these tests is not um, incidental. It's usually in the 
upper hundreds of dollars, if not right. low thousands of dollars. Um, on the other hand, I think you can make a, a, a very valid clinical justification for people who um, haven't had a res typical response to um, one or more drugs or have had uh, untoward sensitivity to uh, dose-related side effects at low doses. Um, right now, to my knowledge, most of the pharmacogenetic testing has been um, best established for um, atypical antipsychotic drugs and antidepressants that mm -hmm. are metabolized by the liver. There's some drugs, including, um, say, valproate, mm -hmm. uh, where pharmacogenetic testing hasn't quite been um, developed yet. But great promise. Um, for some people, I think it's definitely indicated. I'd love to see it be more affordable so that we could get it up front for the first time ever, anybody ever got treated right. to help us just avoid entire Very classes cool. of medicines which I think would be cost savings. Yeah, I agree with that, uh, that, that last point. Uh, we have another uh, question. This is from Raymond Lacey. Uh, the co-occurrence of migraine with bipolar disorder, uh, and does this implicate involvement of the thalamus? Maybe I'll take a, uh, a first uh, uh, response to that. Indeed, we have learned that migraine headache is uh, overrepresented in individuals who have major depressive disorder. In the last two decades, there's been both epidemiological as well as clinical studies that have documented a higher uh, rate, a higher odds ratio, of migraine in individuals who have bipolar disorder as well as their major depressive disorder counterparts. A closer look at the data is, uh, is interesting insofar as the rate of migraine may be higher in bipolar 2 when compared to bipolar 1. And uh, as one might suspect, there are variable estimates ranging from 20% even as high as 70%, depending on which bipolar 2 sample is reported. When you hear that type of overlap of 50, 60, 70%, and you touched on this, Paul, during your presentation, is uh, really it raises a larger question about common neurobiology and the, uh, the, the causative factors, the mechanisms that subserve migraine are being parsed out, are being elucidated. And there are implications not only around thalamus, but also cerebellum and a variety of other brain structures. But what's, what's interesting is that some of these structures, including hypothalamus, are structures we implicate in bipolar disorder as being abnormal or aberrant. So it is quite uh, possible, although a, a hypothesis, that the reason why we have this overrepresentation of migraine in our bipolar patients is because of some of this shared biology. And as a bit of a sort of art of the business, if I have a patient who has bipolar disorder, we talked about the longitudinal course, some of the Robbins and Gouzet criteria, the bipolarity index. I also look for patterns of comorbidity. And sometimes when you hear that history of migraine or you hear the history of binge eating disorder, mm -hmm. it, slights, it, it nuances your assessment of the patient towards maybe more bipolar or not, given the fact that migraine and binge eating, for example, more common really good point. in the bipolar population. So it's a bit of a kind of a nuanced uh, way of coming at that diagnosis. Here's another question, Paul. We have a lot of questions about um, uh, pregnancy and pediatric issues. It's a big, big uh, issue. Put you on the spot. Uh, what's your view on using bipolar medications in pregnancy? Well, um, I think it, get, it gets back to a similar question, the question about discontinuing medicines before. Now, now this is a similar question, actually. It's a, it would be about discontinuing versus continuing but in, but in the face of, of fetal exposure. Um, first, I think it, like everything that we, we try to do, it's an informed consent discussion. Uh, 
um, what are the risks, potential risks of being on medicine to the mother and the fetus versus to being off medicine to the mm -hmm. mother and the fetus. And the, the risks are not trivial being off medicine, mm -hmm. uh, including to the fetus if, if a mother gets ill. Then there's, of course, the timing issue. First trimester period of organogenesis, presumably being the, the period of greatest vulnerability to exposure to drugs with known teratogenic side effects. A lot of the medicines we have, fortunately, um, don't have known teratogenic side effects, but that doesn't prove the null right. hypothesis. So right, right. Uh, they, they could still. Um, I, I try to, one, advise women who, who are of childbearing potential to, to be careful about family planning um, so that we can plan for a period of, of being off medicines if possible and to avoid being on drugs like lithium or carbamazepine or valproate that could pose a greater risk to the, the fetus than, than another agent. But you, you obviously don't have that luxury life being what it is. And then I think it's informed consent decision, pros mm -hmm. and cons. Mm -hmm. Let's, in fact, if we can, maybe finish with one last question. We've got a, uh, a lot of questions. We didn't get to most of these questions. And uh, I'll just mention, uh, for those questions we don't get to, people can, in fact, um, uh, look at our uh, webpage, cmeoutfitters.com, and uh, for more information related to uh, not only today's program, but other uh, upcoming programs. Um, and maybe we'll finish with this issue. And it's, a, again, more of a developmental issue. And that is, is that would we expect any difference in response to treatment in a bipolar patient during growth spurts, and presumably this is uh, through adolescence and so on. Um, would we expect any kind of instability in the, uh, in the, in the, the, you know, the, the condition, or would there be any reason to suspect alterations in pharmacokinetics during growth spurts? One of the questions. Really intriguing question. Um, and Roger, you may be aware of research uh, addressing this that I'm not, but um, other than what you just said, which is you would intuitively guess that with changes in body mass, potential um, hepatic metabolism, just brain neurostructure and, and physiology, there should be differences. But I don't think anybody's ever studied that well. Yeah, you know, it's, an issue, it's a fascinating question. Um, and it makes me think of a related but different question, and that is the pharmacokinetics of our medications in someone who's overweight or obese versus someone who's normal weight. And uh, there is really nothing out there to guide this. And so I think that, um, uh, you know, how are our medications uh, altered by changes not only in height but also weight and certainly uh, body composition. I would love to be here for the next two hours going through these questions. These, these are great questions and indeed very provocative and I think very much uh, reflect the clinical activity of our, of our participants today. You obviously are uh, very uh, busy in your practice and these are very complex issues that we've, we've tried to touch on. I want to refer you again to our, uh, our webpage, neuroscienceceme.com, as a, uh, a portal that you can look at for upcoming programs as well as archive for this program. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I think it's critical for us to highlight the key messages. Again, the use of clinical metrics, diagnostic tools, and evidence-based medicine. Thank you for joining us today.